Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to season two of Performance People with me, Georgie. And me, Ben. Our guests this time round have 38 Olympic or Paralympic medals between them, 22 of them gold. There are countless world records, 16 Everest summits, and the man responsible for some of the greatest inventions of our time. And alongside them are their closest confidants. They will share what drives these exceptional individuals to their highest heights. Performance People is free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can also follow us on our Performance People social channels. Now enjoy this week's episode. Joining us on today's Performance People are a pair who've taken a training philosophy from Rugby Union and applied it to business. Sam Warburton captained Wales 49 times, guiding them to a Six Nations Grand Slam in 2012. He's probably best known though for leading the British and Irish Lions on two undefeated tours, before being forced to retire at 28. As well as rugby punditry, Sam now has a podcast series of his own, Captains. Alongside Sam is his longtime strength and conditioning coach and now business partner Chris Toombs. Chris worked with Sam at Cardiff Blues from the age of 15 and together they now run the SW7 Academy. These two are performance people with a programme for everyone. Rugby will never be safe. You can't have guys who are averaging you know, 17, 18 stone, 16 to 18 stone, some of them are up to 20 stone running into each other for an hour and a half and not expect collisions to cause injury. I'm actually surprised. I'm actually gobsmacked. the fact there's not more injuries in rugby. I know there's a club, I can't say a name, but I know a club um, who I know very well. They're not re-signing a player because he's had too many concussions. They want him to retire. He won't retire himself, so they're not offering him a new contract. Right, first up, I want to ask you a question. What is in the water in Wales, or more specifically, Whitchurch High School, which has produced yourself, Sam Warburton, Gareth Bale and Garant Thomas. So what are they doing that the rest of the country needs to be aware of? It's a freaky coincidence. I remember, was it the, I think it was 2017. It was 2017 or it was one summer and uh, I was named uh, Lions captain. And this all happened within like the same, within like two weeks I was named Lions captain. Gareth scored um, one of the goals in the Champions League final where Real Madrid won. And Gareth Thomas won the first stage of the Tour de France. And I don't see Gareth as much. We, we, we cross paths if we're the national teams train out of a similar base. So I might see him every now and then, but speak to Gareth a bit more regularly. And we sort of obviously ask each other this question. We're all just like, I, well, yeah, I, d- I don't know. Like, it's sort of, I sort of say we should have more. Um, Whitchurch High School is the biggest state school in Wales. You know, like two and a half thousand kids. I'm like, oh, we should have more kids coming out of here. There's loads of us in here. So, yeah, I'm not sure. It's a, a very strange coincidence. There's been, you walk down the hallway in Witcher, and they're very proud of all their um, sort of ambassadors from a sporting perspective. And the amount of age grade um, athletes from all range of athletes, whether it's rugby, football, athletics, cricket, like lacrosse, you know, all these, any badminton, there's hundreds of kids who've played schoolboy stuff. So it's um, they've got a very proud sporting heritage, 
pretty good facilities for a, a normal state school in Wales. You know, I don't, we don't obviously have anywhere near the money of a, a private school in England, for example. But given the resource we've got, they, they do maximise, you know, the kids who come through and have a big emphasis on sport. And um, they did support, you know, all of our careers pretty well. So, yeah, strange, freaky coincidence. But, um, yeah, I, I can't really Get, Getting that. on that sure honours board. Getting on that honours board must be must take some doing, I imagine. <laughs> I, I I used to walk down there when I was like, um, you know, 14, 15, like, I've got to get on that board, you know? So it is, <laughs> I guess, a source of inspiration for young kids. And that's like, you know, it's like you, you must get asked it all the time yourself. And people are like, well, you know, what's it like? To, they, I call it the F word. What's it like to be famous? I'm like, it's not famous. Like, you, you've just been given a talent, but more importantly you've just been willing to work really hard and you've been really resilient on your journey to get to the top but we've all come from normal places you know it's just the ones who are willing to put the work working diligently are the ones who get there you know so I think it's great for children to see that you don't you know come from some supernatural school of sport you know if you want to get to the top you know it's just the right mindset and work ethic but a little bit of talent will help but that gets you there you know and I think it's great for the Wichich pupils to see that. When I looked up at my honours board at school, do you know what name I saw? There was Go someone who actually called their child Fanny Hole. <laughs> oh, my God. oh my God. Seriously, at an all-girls boarding school, of all the things you could have done to your child, to your daughter. Well, she got that is chronic. That's shocking. <laughs> oh, what, a way, what a way to start. <laughs> Sam, you say you can't necessarily tell at a young age what someone's going to turn into. That kind of contradicts your sort of attitude to sport from a really young age, which was extraordinary. I mean, Chris, how just just let people know sort of what age, you know, uh, Sam was when you got involved with him from a training perspective and what sort of a young kid he was from a very early age, the sort of dedication and the rigour and the approach that he took. Yeah, I mean, I, I met Sam going back 2004 now, so close on 20 years. Um, I think he was 15, may have been 16. Um, I've got to say, I met him when he was too tight to spend a fiver on a haircut. Just, <laughs> just, just, wanted to, just wanted to get that one in there early doors, you know, and put that to bed. Humble, uh, humble beginnings. <laughs> humble beginnings they were. But I think one of the things that got really struck me... Brew and away you go. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, one of, the, one of the things that really struck me early on was... Sam's work ethic and actually one of the the first things we did was actually um, encourage him to train less and not more so coming into the Blues Academy I believe it was January of the 20, 2004 maybe anyway he had trained 30 days straight and ultimately it took a couple of discussions and this wasn't immediate this was building a relationship over a, a relatively short period of time I guess in the first instance and just saying listen we love your work ethic, but actually training adaptation occurs when you have rest days as well as, you know, the stimulus of training is important, but the rest days are just as important to drive that adaptation and that stimulus to develop your physical qualities. And I think it was probably within the first three or four months that I guess the relationship was built to some degree in terms of just seeing the diligence, the work ethic that is, as Sam's kind of renowned for. And, and from there, it was about shaping the programming to just maximize the physical quality development and then as we kind of developed from a professional standpoint I guess it was about not just those physical qualities then which I guess people at Cardiff took notice quite quickly and I think Sam's actually still the youngest player ever to play um, men's professional rugby in Wales I think they had to do sign some special paperwork to get him to play professional level or semi-professional level at 17 because from a physical prowess standpoint, I think the you know the test scores were off the charts for a player of his position, and I think um, it was yeah born out of his work ethic really and his coachability. Ultimately, it's about that coachability piece as well. And Sam was responsive not only for or responsible for his own work ethic, but responsive to being coachable. And ultimately, we did probably half the work that he was used to, but he actually made some giant strides from a physical development standpoint. So. That was, uh, that was the front end of his kind of career in our, our early meetings. I think it'd be really interesting for people to know who, who don't necessarily know how an obsession breaks down with a professional athlete, how different it is from anyone else's regular training sessions. And I know you guys now have this sort of uh, this SW7 Academy together, and it's all about bringing the professionalism of an elite training program to the masses. Um, 
So is it actually quite a simple structure that you put in place, Chris? And it's about the repetition and like you say, the coachability. Speaking to Ben Williams, who's Ben's head of human performance for the sailing team, he says it's so important to maintain the asset, he calls him, maintain the asset and look after the asset and actually to keep things simple. You know, and I think the perception is, is that you've got these really complicated training programs um, for professional athletes. Is that the case? Or wh where does the where does the sort of um, elite aspect come from in terms of the training program itself? And, and what do you need to become an athlete like Sam? Ah, oh, great question. And um, yeah, Ben's absolutely right. And I think Sam has probably laid testament to this as well. I think the simplicity is is absolutely pertinent to the success of a program. I think some of the key core kind of fundamental principles of strength and conditioning have stood the test of time. And there's a lot of shiny toys out there in this day and age, particularly and especially given the kind of distractions of social media. But, but Sam and I laugh and talk about this almost weekly around, I kind of, I guess the the Twitter hashtag of doing the work, being consistent, being being kind of diligent to actually have the the patience to do the work. And I think that's the biggest challenge. And I think our programming might not necessarily be any different to anybody else's programming out there, but in, in Sam's case and other examples of that nature, it's actually the the players who've got the patience and the and the appetite to do the work for not just weeks on end, not just months on end, but years on end. It, those are the players who will ultimately reap the rewards and, and see the benefits of the work. And ultimately, there's, there's no shortcuts to, to the top of the tree. Ben will be another shining example of this. You know, the overnight sensation took 15 or maybe even 20 years to develop into, you know, a multi-medal winning Olympian or in Sam's case, you know, two times Lions cha uh, captain doesn't take five minutes, it takes 15 years. And being able to stick the course is an absolutely huge, hugely important thing. But I guess we live in the social media world where instant gratification is, why, why am I not as strong and as fast and as big as Sam? I've been training for six weeks. It's like, hold on a minute. You've got to do another three or four years or five years of that before we'll even start to see that kind of, um, those stimulus kind of get realized in physical development and physical prowess. What you like to go on holiday with, Sam? Because Ben is a complete nightmare. There's always a training program in place. And it's like, when can I fit some time in in the gym, constantly clock watching, instead of thinking about just relaxing? Which I think, I'm, I'm a yeah, firm yeah. believer in what Chris said about rest and recovery days are well, really important too. You're going to decide yeah. if you're going to be an appreciating asset or a depreciating asset. <laughs> 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 I, I concur. I, I remember... I went on my honeymoon. Um, I got married fairly young, I guess, for a guy. I, got, I was 25. I was on my honeymoon now, my off-season. And uh, we're having food in the night. And my wife said, you're going to have a drink? I'm like, no, I'm training tomorrow. She's like, you're oh. off-season. we got another three, four weeks off. Um, and we got like five days here in the Maldives. What, what do you mean you're training? I'm, like, I'm training in the morning. And I just had, I had a couple of scoops of chocolate ice cream. That was it for dessert. And the next morning then I get up, I go into a little gymnasium. Um, you know, they're, they're pretty basic when you go to these places. And I remember there was these like, there was these small sort of Sri Lankan guys just like looking, who worked there, just looking through the, the window of this gym. And I'm there like pouncing, like pounding the treadmill at like 19 kilometers an hour, jumping off, doing some like bag work and things like that, just killing myself, you know? And cause that was just, the, that's just what I'm used to. And they're probably thinking, what on earth is this guy doing? He's meant to be relaxing in the Maldives. But I just, that's just always the work ethic I've had. And I obviously, Chris educated me massively on, on rest days. I did have rest days, but yeah, on holiday. Um, and it's like when I go, I have to get a good gym. And, and my say I do broadcasting work now, they know if they book me a hotel, they'll be like, yep, Sam, booked you in at such and such in Edinburgh or in London or in Coventry. And by the way, it's got a gym, so all good. Like, they just know what I want. So um, yeah, that's just the way I am. When I go away, I'll take three, four gym kits and I got to make sure I do that. One, because I know it's it's good for me. Um, but two, I, it's, it's just like old habits, old habits die hard. I'm just so used to it. And I love putting myself through that adversity. Um, and I, I imagine a lot of people listening to this will, will know what that feels like. But I just absolutely love it. And my wife's got used to it now and she's, she's just accepts me for who I am. Some people be she's thinking, not. Oh she's not got used to it. She's telling you that she has. <laughs> she has not got used to it, nor does she accept it. Do you also do that really annoying thing where with your gym kit, you hang it up in the shower 
and it just sort of like drips in the shower <laughs> until the point where it never really dries for the next session. Well, you, you've let Ben yes. down there. I've never done that. <laughs> hey, Chris, if you, Chris, as a as a as a coach, have you got any advice for dealing with partners, difficult partners? <laughs> He won't let you train. Like, don't want to turn this into a sort of marital session, but anyway. It's a difficult one to answer, Ben, because I do have a wife who does have sympathy for me and my kind of gym habits, which are relatively similar to, to Sam's, and she's incredibly understanding. But um, yeah, difficult one, Ben, actually. I mean, you, your wife's sitting right next to you, so it's it's a little bit awkward. Maybe off air, we'll try and do some problem solving. <laughs> Sam, if I list these, fractured cheekbone, broken jaw, dislocated finger, knee ligament injuries, knee operations, neck operations, shoulder ligaments, shoulder damage, dislocated shoulder, torn hamstrings and ankle ligament injuries. I mean, you literally put your body on the line. I mean, what what does that feel like? I mean, what does it, yeah, what does it physically feel like when you have that impact against somebody in a match and it's, it's just, it, you know, what, just describe that whole that whole feeling, what it physically feels like. Do you know, it's strange. I, I went on a charity bike ride the other day, and um, I said the other day, a few months ago, and I was really poor in the descents. They were going 50 mile an hour, and we, we did some big climbs. We come down, we, they, the guys on the bikes doing 50 miles an hour. I, I, we haven't got their Stravas out at the end of the day, and they were laughing at me because I came in like half hour after everyone else. And my max speed was 25 mile an hour going downhill. And I was terrified, absolutely terrified. This was a three-day ride. And I said to the guys that who were the experienced cyclists, like, you guys are mad. How on earth can you go down a hill at 50 mile an hour? I, I think you're absolutely crazy. And they said, how many operations do you have playing rugby? I said, seven. They said, I think you're crazy. I was like, yeah, okay, touche. Because I was like, I'm more comfortable with 18 stone guys running at me. For, for an hour and a half than riding down a hill on a bike. But I guess it's just, it, it sounds so weird. It becomes so normal and so strange. And my first shoulder operation I had, I remember I broke down in tears when the doctor ran me up and told me the diagnosis from the MRI scan. And I was like a, a teenager living at home. And then by the time I had my last shoulder operation, I was like, oh, thank God I get a break. You know, like <laughs> your perspective changes, you know, you don't get a break unless you're injured as a, as a pro sports person. And the, the, that list didn't include, um, you know, concussions and muscle tears and things like that. I, I had basically a, a nine-year professional career and three and a half of it was injured. Um, so, that, you know, that doesn't include my teenagers. So, you know, it's quite, I'm quite surprised actually in the six and a half years I did play, I managed to sort of fit in a fair bit. But it's, it's strange because normal. There's only the one time I remember playing for Cardiff and I experienced a concussion. Um, I went into the, I had to go off the pitch but as I got hit, um, I looked down at the floor and I could see blood sort of pouring out of my uh, where my eye was, where my eye, my eye socket sort of thing. So I remember thinking, oh, this is bad. I put my hand on my eye and my hand was covered in blood. And I knew it was a cheap shot. Somebody had like basically punched me in the face with, and they had a forearm guard on. So I went to the referee who wouldn't look at me. I said, ref, you need to have a look at that. I tapped the ref because, you know, you're always polite. Excuse me, ref, you, you need to have a look. And he wouldn't look at me in the, in the eye. Then I said, excuse me, I tapped him. Which you're not, I don't, you don't touch referees, but I had to touch him. He turned around, and as he turned around, he just he looked shocked. And then I was actually started panicking for the first time, so I knew he thought, oh, crikey, that looks bad. I couldn't see out my eye, so I didn't know if I'd lost my sight, but I thought, I need to try to keep calm here. So the physio went on, they took me off. Um, I went to sort of blow my nose, and my eye started swelling up, which is a sign of a fractured uh, eye socket when you get a swelling. And it turned out, I just had a concussion. I split my eyelid completely from north to south. Um, I had like what they call a, a nerve stinger injury. So I had a, I, it was one of the injuries that retired me. Um, gets this really bad nerve pain down my neck and arm from where your, your, your spine sort of jams up. And a nerve which serves your shoulder comes out of your neck. So my nerve was firing off. It's like you've got really bad pins and needles for about 10 minutes. You know, it just doesn't go away. Had concussions, so my head was throbbing. Um, eye socket was swollen and bleeding. I was having my eye—I was lying on a on a bed under the stand, having my eyelid stitched back up. And you obviously can't close your eyes and not look at it. So I'm watching this surgeon stitch my eye back together. And I remember at that point thinking, and I had a, a, my one-year-old, my girl was one at the time. I remember thinking there must there must be easier ways to win a living than this. <laughs> like that was when I started realizing that actually the risk of playing rugby didn't outweigh the reward of a, a long, healthy family life. And I played for another maybe two years from that. But that was the first moment that I actually had a bit of reality. And I went home and I suddenly thought, I'm not sure how much longer I want to put my body through this. When you're young and you're naive and 
you're running into things 100 miles an hour head first. And I was a very ab- abrasive player. I wasn't necessarily the most, sk- I certainly wasn't the most skilled player, um, not from a, a hand dexterity point of view, but I had a certain level of aggression and athleticism which allowed me to play the game. And it was at probably at the age of 25, 26, I started realising, 26, you know, I, I started thinking long-term about my body, which is why I only played at 28, which is quite young. Um, but yeah, it, it's normal. But when I started a family, then that suddenly gave me a, a different perspective on things. As it so often does. Um, when you wrote your book, you put in it, if something isn't done soon, a professional player will die during a game in front of TV cameras. I mean, it, is rugby too dangerous? Is it too dangerous? <clears throat> rugby will never be safe you, you can't have 30 guys uh, and I'm an average size guy like I'm 6'3 like 16 and a bit stone and I'm average size for a rugby player you can't have guys who are averaging you know 17, 18 stone 16 to 18 stone some of them are up to 20 stone running into each other for an hour and a half and not expect collisions to cause injury I'm actually surprised I'm actually gobsmacked there's not more injuries in rugby and I actually think rugby is doing for the situation it's in I think it's actually doing a great job and I've been highly critical of it in the past, so I'm not just trying to be a, a good spokesperson for rugby. I've been highly critical. I think they're actually doing a, a great job now. If, because I say, if boxing had the same protocols as rugby, there wouldn't be a sport. Physically, wouldn't be a sport. The, the sport would be stopped after most rounds. First round, sport would have to be sport to get the match would have to stop. And because if they had the same protocols as rugby, that player would have to be taken away from the competition. So, I think they're doing the right thing. Uh, but people just need to understand we can make rugby safer but you can't make it safe you can't you can't have that many people the analogy I use is if I was walking around a supermarket and I dropped my car keys and I went down to pick them up just bent over went to pick my car keys and somebody 18 stone ran into me and just smoked me in the back of the neck as hard as they could well that that's legal and that happens every 20 seconds in rugby but in a normal environment that would just look like outrageous GBH um, but that's just the kind of sport that we play and you sort of accept it um, none of it's malicious or very few times it's malicious when it's malicious that sort of really winds me up you know, I never went out to hurt people wanted to physically impose myself and dominate but never wanted to hurt anybody and I never looked to hurt anybody and you know all my teammates could vouch for that I, was, I played hard but I thought I was always very fair very fair so when I see dirty play you know, I'm the first commentator to get him off I just I hate that you know and it just doesn't paint the picture in a good the sport in a good in a good light and set a, sort of paint a good picture so yeah sport is not going to forever be you know perfectly safe but they're making at least you know good strides in, in making it safer I guess if you sanitize the sport do you make it less popular with the fan base who clearly love this gladiatorial contest that's going on I mean how comfortable are you with that as a player or were you <clears throat> do you know what I was completely comfortable playing rugby um, I can't throw a tennis ball with my right arm if I if you said to me launch a tennis ball as hard as you can I, I can't do it um, I don't complain about it I knew that would happen I knew if you're going to hit people thousands and thousands of times with my right shoulder I'm not going to have a functional shoulder you know without shoulder replacements when I'm older so I understood those risks and that's why I'll never complain about having a bad shoulder or my neck's a bit sore my knees are a bit sore but the only one thing which does bother me a little bit, and I don't know what the science is behind this yet, but which has started emerging is the uh, dementia aspect of rugby. That's the only bit which, you know, I was the, I was listening to those podcasts and interviews. I'm driving the car to a game and you think, geez, you know, maybe I should get checked. And I played the game knowing I might be have some physical um, sort of inability as I grow older, which is why I finished prematurely as well, because of the physical side. I didn't want to be, I've seen ex-players walking around by me, you know, and they look awful. I, I don't want to be that guy when I'm mid-40s, 50. So I finished at 29, called it a day at 29, but I didn't play ever knowing that I would have potentially um, dementia at, at the age of 50. So that, that's the only thing that, that worries me, but I, I, I was looked after very well. I think it's the generation who played in the 90s and noughties who might suffer more. Um, The protocols that are in place now, and I'm lucky that I played the sport when it was fully professional, had some great medical staff around me. You know, Chris was obviously part of an elite sort of S&C team who I trust massively. I was looked after very well, so I'm not too concerned for myself. I think it's the players, the generation before me, who we're seeing now. Um, And I'm still going to do my due diligence. I'm taking supplements now, which apparently have benefits for the brain and dementia and rebuilding brain neurons i'm not taking any chances just in case uh, i am taking the supplements now um, so i'm doing that just just to be to make sure i'm doing what i can to protect myself for with, what with might your happen. concussions with your concussions did you have brain scans or anything like that at the time or <clears throat> is it just yeah. older a concussion 
it's kind of very subjective, the, the medical diagnosis of a concussion at the minute, but there was um, like a research going on uh, with the university in South Wales and they came to the, the club that I was at and they offered all the players if they wanted to have all these brain checks um, and go back the next year and you could see if anything had happened, positive or negative, and yeah, I did it. And, and so they were quite proactive in that, which I was pleased about. Um, similarly with like, you know, we see people having cardiac arrests, you know, playing, um, got a heart scan, you know, quite regular. So... I can say maybe I'm on the lucky end of the spectrum. Um, at Cardiff and Wales, they looked after me extremely well from a medical perspective, and I haven't got a bad word to say about them. Even when I retired, they knew I was retiring or having a sabbatical. And they just said, whatever you need operated on, we'll, we'll sort the operation out because you need to be able to live a life after rugby. So I was lucky. I was looked after very well, but I feel for maybe some of the players who played in that amateur professional crossover who might have been a second, third choice player who didn't have the same level of care. I, I don't know whether that's true or not, um, but from my personal experience, I was, I was looked after pretty well. Yeah, one of the things that really struck me was I was watching Steve Thompson's documentary, <clears throat> Rugby, Dementia and Me. And one of the things that really struck me was the intensity of the training programme back then and how they trained. It wasn't just the physicality of, of, a, of game day. It was the training mm and just repeating the behavior again and again and again. Does that not happen now in a, in, a, in a rugby training scenario so that they don't just keep sort of refreshing the injury or the problem? Yeah, I think people don't realize, like it's not necessarily always the games, it's the accumulative contacts from a young age and mm. all the training. Um, you know, Chris actually was at Leicester Tigers in the 90s, yeah, noughties, 90s? Uh, early 2000s, early, yeah. early noughties. So Chris has sort of seen the professional game go from the noughties into the tens and and, and now. Um, and yeah, you know, I'm sure you could vouch it. It's drastically changed. Um, players, you have to limit your contact time now because you, you physically have to. But back then, yeah, in the noughties and the 90s, you know, if somebody was injured, they'd often strap up and carry on playing. Where now, if you're injured... Shepherd Hook, you're out, you're gone. You can't, you can't blag it, you know? So um, I know there's a club, I can't say a name, but I know a club um, who I know very well. They're not re-signing a player because he's had too many concussions. They want him to retire. He won't retire himself. So they're not offering him a new contract because they don't want him to cause any more damage to himself. And it's unfortunate for him and his family, but that's the steps that clubs are taking to make sure that they're not being negligent. So that's why I think they're trying to do the right things. But like I say, I can't speak for, for what happened 20 years ago. And they might have, maybe, but maybe they weren't aware of the science back then. So it's a, it's a really tricky one. Sam, is there, as I'm sure they've looked at this, but would a weight limit, for example, help either an individual weight limit or a squad weight limit? Yeah, it's a good one. Like, there's lots of questions and theories like weight limits. Do you have no substitutes? So you increase the demands aerobically for, for players. So they can't be so big. The only thing is with big players, there's some guys that are naturally, which sounds freaky, but you know, there's there's guys we would have coached and played against who are naturally took like your Fijian, your Islanders, are enormous men, and it would almost be um, like discrimination against them, almost, you know. So, and and this is the thing with rugby, and I sometimes sound like an old broken record when I'm doing my punditry and analysis. Rugby is a an extremely physical, combative sport where. 99 times out of 100, and all top coaches know this, the most physical team will win. Um, and that's the sport. You know, that, that is the sport. You know, it's it's not sevens. Sevens is very different, um, much more skill-based, uh, has a much more greater demand on, on fitness levels from, from an aerobic sort of capacity, really. Um, but yes, 15s is a brutal physical sport. And if you, don't, if you don't win physically, you don't win. So it's without completely reinventing the sport, it's going to be very, very difficult. I think the substitute thing is probably the best one, but then you enter the grey area of are people coming off because they're injured or because it's tactical and you get all that grey area of gamesmanship. Um, but it's, it's a very tricky one. and I actually don't know what, what the answer is right now. Chris, in terms of managing an injury, in terms of managing someone like Sam through injuries as well, how, how do you best go about that? Because obviously they're, they're sort of, you know, probably impatient with the rehab, probually dying to get back into the action, I'm presuming all of this. Maybe so, not. Last time he said maybe he not actually right. He said he <laughs> yeah, I guess it's that it depends. How do you manage an athlete? How do you manage an athlete who is struggling um, and the ups and downs of, of an injury scenario? Yeah, I mean, looking back at kind of where I studied and, and they didn't even have strength and conditioning degrees when I went to uni. I mean, I studied human movement studies and thankfully I did the kind of went down the sports psychology route, which I actually think has been like served me really well over my career. Because I think the, the mental side of not only being 
physically active and well and performing at, at the highest level, which is obviously is hugely valuable. I actually think that the psychology of being injured is a really, really interesting area because, yeah, some people are really, really badly affected by it and others see being injured, a bit like what Sam alluded to earlier, as an opportunity to take a break in some respects, mentally, more so than physically, potentially. But also I always used to spin injury into a positive where possible and suggest that, you know, focus on the things that you can do rather than the things you can't do. So ultimately a shoulder injury, of course, you've got to manage and modify training because of the healing process and immobility and all that sort of stuff. But ultimately, you know, your leg strength, for example, could be a focus point for, you know, an extended period of time, which may or may not have contributed to being that more explosive at at certain times throughout their career. And ultimately, I think you've just got to try and switch it on its head and take the big positives out of being injured. Um, You're absolutely right. Managing that level of impatience sometimes is a challenge without a shadow of a doubt, depending on which which athletes you you had in your care at that time. I mean, Sam mentioned that I was at the Tigers, there's a couple of players who used to spend more time injured than um, than not played this, the game a bit like Sam without naming too many names. <laughs> but you know, some some players play a position that is extremely combative, combative, combative. Can't even say the word. <laughs> but um, ultimately, people who spend a lot of time with their heads in the ground and their you know their hips in the air are getting hit by two, three, four players at a time. And ultimately that will have a cost at some point in time. But in terms of going back to the injury and, and care, just I think the psychology of flipping everything to be as positive as possible and focusing on what you can do versus what you can't do. And yeah, to Sam's point again, to try to also sometimes hold people back was an important element and make sure that they took an extra week in rehab so that they didn't just play when half cooked or three quarter cooked and then ended up taking one step forward to get onto the field to take three steps back because they weren't ready. So that extra week, I always used to think that extra week was really, really valuable and just that little bit more patience to make sure you're totally ready to return to play versus you could probably play this weekend, but if you wait one more week, you'll you'll perform more optimally for probably a longer period of time uh, alongside that. (laughs) Sam, what were you like when you were injured? Like you said, there was a huge chunk of time, really valuable time in your playing career where you were injured. What sort of a person were you like at that time? I mean, obviously you're dealing with the physical issues of being injured, but as Chris alluded to there, there's there's some mental challenges as well with that as well. You can imagine rugby is quite an alpha environment. It's a great environment, but it's quite alpha. So when you're suddenly... I found the most difficult ones was when you're having operations because... You see your legs, for example, or your shoulder, um, the amount of atrophy that you get and your muscle just gets smaller and smaller because it's not being used. That that was really demoralising um, because I, I, I'm a little bit vain. You know, I was always into training and I always wanted to be big and strong and like someone like Lennox Lewis would have inspired me growing up. I was always wanted to be massive. So, Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Going through injury and getting smaller and seeing yourself get physically weaker was a really tough thing to do. But as Chris said, I remember actually getting injured under Chris's guidance and I was having a shoulder drop at a young age of 19. And then we came up with a plan then with, for my legs. And like Chris said, I just focused on my legs so much. I was like really watching them um, like develop and grow and get stronger, more powerful. And I knew that. And then you explain the benefits that that will have to me physically when I do come back. 
you will be even quicker, Sam, and even more explosive and even more domineering than when you were injured. Then you look forward to that point when you come back and suddenly then it becomes like a, a drug. You know, you, you have to manage that time carefully when you're going backwards, which is probably lasting a shoulder operation maybe two months when you can't do anything. You have to completely rest your shoulder. Then you can start doing really light movement band work. And then I like visualize the muscle growing and knitting back together and I'm on that journey back up and that curve back up. So yeah, I had a good support network. I had great advice from from people like Chris who obviously seen this thing hundreds of times before. But it's like Chris said, focus on the positives, look at the bigger picture and actually getting excited again to really blow people away and surprise them when you do come back and make everyone realise what they've missed out on, you know. So that's what I just used to have. It's always that long-term goal, whether it's to play for the British and Irish Lions or whether it's to build a business. You know, you're going to have setbacks, but just constantly remember what that long-term goal is. And you'll just keep keep chugging along. And that's why we say those resilient people get it get to the top. But it pains me when people say, oh, I would have made it, but I got injured, you know. And they use that as an excuse. And without trying to sound too harsh, I had two operations for the age of 20, but I never let it stop me. I was like, well, when I come back, I'm going to be so good. They can't, they can't not pick me. And and I guess that having that diligence and resilience, I guess, you know, a lot of teenagers will get, maybe they're not as strong-willed. Um, maybe a coach might tell them they won't be good enough when they get back. But, you know, fortunately, I had good people around me, like Chris is a great example. I've still got my same agent who represented me for a young age, who just told me everything that I needed to hear. You know, they were very positive um, and that's what you need. The people around you are extremely positive, and I was lucky to have that support network. Do you think it also gives you sort of a focus or a distraction ahead of something big? I'm just thinking of you with the 2012 games, and you had to have that monster back operation. Do you remember before the 2012 mm. games? And you were, you know, there was so much chatter about whether you would <clears> or wouldn't get back to where you needed to get to ahead of 2012, and that was going to be this big sort of last hurrah. No, I think it was more of an inconvenience at that point. But <laughs> no, I, I don't think so. But I remember, to Sam's point, I remember one training camp I did in Plymouth, and we were sailing in Plymouth Sound, and I was one of the sort of younger members in the squad. And the coach decided we were going to go out to sea, you know, past the breakwater, out into the waves. And then he turned around to me and said, "Oh, I don't really think you're up. You know, you're not quite the standard of the other kids. I think you should just stay." In it's the like a red rag. Oh my god, I was so pissed <laughs> off. And that was it. That, that uh, forever that was my motivation. And then I remember meeting that coach, maybe I don't know, about ten years later. And uh I reminded him, I said, I've got to thank you, you know. He said, What are you talking about? I said, You pissed me off so much that you you inspired me to go in there and, and and train to, you know, get to the Olympics or whatever. So yeah, you sometimes need a bit of a kick up the backside to try and. Do you know what? I love that. And, um, yeah. People talk about sources and motivation and what's right, what's wrong. There's no one right or wrong source. But I, I was like you, Ben. Proving people wrong was a huge source of motivation for me. And I was the same. I was um, I was 17 when Chris was talking about playing men's rugby. And I turned up to this men's club and they said, What's your goal for this season? I said, I want to play yeah, 10, 15 games, break myself in. And I remember the coach went, You're not that good. And I remember thinking, I fucking am. Because <laughs> uh, without, without sounding arrogant, you, you can't, when you're playing, you don't talk like this because you don't want to sound rude in front of the press. Um, but what, what you're actually thinking in your mind is, I'll show you, you have no idea how good I am. And I love that. And then within a couple of months, I, I was doing really well. And But I love it when people tell me I can't do something because I'm like, you just told that to the wrong person. I remember actually a GCSE, my RE teacher predicted me an E. And I went up to a fuming and I said, you predicted me an E. She said, yes, because you don't do any work, Sam. I said, I promise you I'll get an A. I absolutely promise you I'll get an A. She said, why? And I said, because I'll put the work in and I'll do it. And I did. I did my GCSEs. I revised like crazy. Got my results and I got an A. And I was walking across the yard and I heard these heels running across the playground as she ran up to me. But I said, I told you, I told you, don't tell me I can't do something because I'll do it. So I completely agree with Ben. It's uh, proving people wrong is a great source of motivation. Is your bro- does your brother have the same attitude as you, Sam? I mean, obviously you're twins, so that, that pulls you closer together than a, a normal relationship, normal sibling relationship. I mean, do you, are you both very similar or are you both different? Yeah, no, very similar. People laugh when they talk to Ben because they're just like, 
And people laugh when they talk to me. Cause I'm like, what are you laughing at? They're like, you, you're just exactly the same as your brother, your mannerisms, the way you are. My brother's um, a physiotherapist at Cardiff Rugby now. So, you know, he's, he's done, you know, he's done well himself and he's worked in national squads and um, so he's done very well, but he was very similar. I actually feel kind of guilty about a lot of my career because Ben suffered a, a really severe nerve injury, which he has no no shoulder deltoid at the moment. Like he just, it's gone. And he suffered that at 14, didn't discover it till he was about 17, 18. So, um, I always felt a bit guilty because he was a bit more talented than me in many aspects. He had better footwork, um, better ball handling skills, but quicker. ultimately I was just bigger. Quicker. Yeah, but yeah, <laughs> bigger to say. Quicker. Quicker. Um, but I was just bigger. Um, so I kind of felt a bit guilty about some of my success. You know, he suffered a really bad nerve injury and he couldn't make the physical progress that I made. He, he's, he's smaller than me anyway. But yeah, so I kind of felt always guilty, but, he's, but throughout it all, he's been my biggest supporter, biggest sort of fan you know I, I absolutely love it and he said he said to me like which is really nice to have this level of support when people go up to go up to him and say oh oh Sam I'm, I'm Sam's biggest fan or whatever he go no you're not I'm his biggest fan you know and I I, I sort of I, I do a lot of what I did for Ben not because he, he's not envious at all and when I see his career in physiotherapy I'm always spurring him to do really well I, I want him to do so well and we're each other's sort of biggest fans really so I again you talk about support networks I was so lucky I was close to, to so many good people I'm presuming you spoke to him quite a bit before you decided to announce your retirement did you I imagine you had a very close-knit group of people that you had that kind of discussion with because it came as a big shock to everybody else <laughs> Yeah, he said, thank God for that. I freeze up seven hours of my week. <laughs> he, um, <laughs> he was at Cardiff at the time. He was a Cardiff physio at the time. But no, he was he, he was a bit gutted like my dad. Uh, my mum punched the air when I rang her and said I was going to retire because she just hated me playing rugby. As you could probably imagine, you know, if your kids grew up and play a similar sport. Uh, my mum was delighted. My my brother and my dad were, were a bit gutted. But yeah, he was someone I spoke to very closely about, you know. And um, for, for me, it was always about... I would only I only ever played for Cardiff. They were the only club I was only going to play for. Cardiff boy. Uh, obviously, I was going to play for Wales, uh, even though I got English heritage. But above all, I had to play for the Lions. I had to, and I had to be a Test player, and I had to start in the Test team. And after I'd done that on two tours, I guess I got to the point of having a young family, and my motivation just completely changed. I, I suddenly went from being this incredibly, which some people might have got this impression, this in, incredibly kind of, you have to be selfish. You know, Ben, you'll say the same. Like, you've got to be selfish to reach the top in sport. It doesn't mean that you don't care about your family, but you just, you have to do what you have to do to get to the top. And sometimes it's to the detriment right, of yeah. family time and some friends. Yeah. <laughs> and, I'm but then they, they, Thanks, Yeah, you know, yeah, you understand. But then they got a point in my career, I was like, actually, I, I don't want to put the family second anymore. I actually want to put them first and my priorities just completely flipped. So I've been retired five and a half years already now. Did you have a specific moment where that changed for you? Because mm. with most people, there is sort of a gradual feeling towards not wanting yeah. to miss out too much on the children. But it, it was there a moment, it feels to me like there was a moment for you where you literally went, boom, this <clears> is, this is, I've got to, I've got to do this. There was a yeah. I came home from one training session. I had a bit of a sabbatical for six months. I came back, got in good shape, but went training. I jumped in back with the lads, and I came home from this day's training. I went into my garden, and I was on my own looking after the kids. I picked them up from my parents. My wife was still in work. I went in the garden with my what was she two at the time, two year old daughter, and um, well, I was trying to just bounce on the trampoline with her, and I couldn't get off the off my knees off the trampoline because my knees were really sore. And I struggle with I've had I, one of my operations was cartilage operation when I was eighteen, so I, I struggled with with chronic cartilage problems in my knee. I couldn't get off the off the trampoline, and I was actually like swearing under my breath because I was so frustrated. She was asking me to bounce, and I couldn't bounce the, on the trampoline. We went in the house, tried to carry up the stairs, like I couldn't. I was like, you got to. She had to like crawl up the stairs, and I thought this is ridiculous. And my wife came home, and I was like quite emotional, and I just knew I was like, I can't keep doing this anymore. I can't keep my body through this, and. I said to her, Rachel, I'm retiring, and this is for good. And she and she knew I was serious. I said, but don't talk to me. And I texted my agent the same thing. I said, mate, this is it. I'm, I'm finishing. Don't ring me. I, I, I won't be able to speak, but I'm finishing. And he rang me the next morning. And um, the WIU wanted me to go in and, and meet me because they thought they don't know if I'm just throwing my toys out the pram. I went into the Principality Stadium now, met you know some of the top guys in the WIU, 
with my agent. And after about 30 seconds, they stopped me talking. They said, Sam, well, we only just needed to see you face to face, just check you're okay. We can we can tell this is it. And I was actually gutted. And I went back into the lift. I remember saying to my agent, that was the hardest thing I've ever had to do because I'm turning my back on everything I was aspiring to be and wanting to do. But I just got to the point, I was like, I can't, I can't keep putting my body through this. You know, I, I got much more important things at home that I need to look after. I, I want to be an active dad, an active granddad. And, you know, the risk of playing rugby didn't outweigh the reward of a, a long, healthy family life. And I was lucky I achieved what I wanted to achieve. I thought, yeah, I've played for Cardiff, Captain Wales, Captain the Lions. I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm going to count my blessings and I'm going to leave while I can. And I, I remember chatting to the head coach and I said, if I, I don't want this to sound selfish or spoil. But I said, and I sort of mentioned I needed to be physically at my peak to be good. I said, mate, if I can't be number one, I don't want to play. I don't think I'm going to get back to the physical levels I can get to. I don't want to fade away like a boxer who just can't retire, who ends up getting beaten up and ends up with his back on the canvas and people look at you as an old man. I I don't want to be remembered like that. I wanted to sort of finish when I was sort of at, hopefully at the peak of my powers, you know. So that was kind of why I made that decision. And luckily it's been five years and um, yeah, I haven't regretted that decision for a day. It's interesting, isn't it? It's almost like the fear, we talk a lot about the fear of failure driving athletes to win, but it's almost like the fear of failure drove you to choose another option at that point in time. It's kind of weird because like what finished my career was ironically why I played it. I love the physical aspect. I remember playing football um, for like a good good club side in Cardiff. I was under 14s at an immaculate disciplinary record. I joined them and I had two reds and three yellows in the first season. <laughs> Not because I was being dirty, I was just being physical. And I was like, I need to play a sport where I can bang people. <laughs> like I need to. I lo- I loved rugby and um, you know I, I, like when I'm when I'm out injured, I I used to get frustrated. My wife could tell, and she's like, oh, you're not because you're not playing rugby. You're getting really frustrated in the house. You haven't got that release, you know. And that's why I still train so much now. I think, but yeah, weirdly, what what finished me is what got me going. Um, and yeah, I I did fear not being as good as I could possibly be. I would never want to play against a good youngster. On a, on a big stage at a Six Nations level and that youngster play against me and think I thought Sam was meant to be Lions captain standard I don't think he was as good as I thought And because I've experienced that playing senior players I've played senior players and I thought I've completely done him and he's not as good as I thought he was I'm sure he was a lot better six, seven, eight years ago and I thought I don't want people to think of me like that I, I only want people to sort of play with me once I could do be at nearly 100% capacity so yeah, that was just kind of the way I thought. And I, I don't think I could have hit those physical heights in, into my 30s. It's really interesting, isn't it? It's a really interesting sort of a, approach to all of it. And captaincy came to you so young. Like when I think about who you would have had difficult conversations with about retiring, Warren Gatland would have been that person, right? Oh, so so how, how hard was it having that conversation with that guy who gave you that opportunity to be the, the captain? I, I know he sort of, when he picked me, I was I was 22 at the time, and he was probably looking two, three World Cup cycles ahead, thinking he might not be the get. I was, certainly wasn't the best captain when I was 22. Made a load of mistakes. Uh, I actually cringe when I was 22 as being a captain now at some of the things I might have done. But I felt when I was finishing, I I, I felt I was good. Um, and he probably thought I was going to be the captain then for. Oh, he's probably not thought. He's probably hoping I was going to continue along a similar trajectory and be captain for the third World Cup for Wales in a row. Um, so telling him I was in my garden and he was in New Zealand at the time he's a, a Kiwi for those who don't know and it was it was outside of the international campaign and we were playing a bit of phone tennis trying to catch each other and I, had, I actually was speaking to him on the phone with my head in my hands for the five minutes I, I was dreading this phone call for probably took about three days the moment I decided to retire to when I actually caught him on the phone horrendous conversation because he put so much faith in me and like his his idea of captaincy and leadership was very different to what I thought it was and that's why I didn't mind doing it under him because he asked me to do it at 22 and I was like I can't do it I had about 10 caps under my belt there was guys 13 14 years my senior and I listed off all these players said what about him 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 all these players he went I want you to do it so we played England in a World Cup warm-up game and I, I played this one game we came back into training on the Monday and I was captain of that one game. I thought, I'll do it for this one game that our normal captain will pick up the reins um, and he'll be fit again. Turns out, we come back into training, our captain was ruled out for about three months. So I thought, oh, he's going to ask me to do it for the World Cup. So he said, as you've heard, um, current captain's injured. Do you want to be captain for the World Cup? I said, I, I can't. And the World Cup's about three weeks away. 
I said, mate, I, I can't do it. I'm not ready. I, I'm, not, I'm not a captain. I don't think I'm a captain or a leader. And he said, come with me. So he took me over to the laptops where the team room is. And he lifted the laptop. He went to the analyst. He said, show Sam that clip that I was talking to you about. And when we played England, we won a really important penalty two minutes from the end, which led to, towards winning the game. And he just played the clip and we won this penalty. Referee signals for the penalty. And I, he just pointed at the top of the screen. I can march it in from the top of the screen, punch in the air, cheering quite aggressively, but really competitive, picking guys up off the floor, tapping everyone, geeing them up, went to our number 10, who's a key decision maker, sort of made a decision on what we were going to do, kicked to the line out, what play we were going to have, and then we played. All that happened in about 15 seconds. And he paused it and he just said, that's leadership and that's what I want you to do. And I was like, okay, yeah, I can, I can do that. And Because I thought captaincy was being like six foot six, tape around the ears, steam coming out of him, ruling with an iron fist. It's not. It's not. It's just about displaying the habits that I was displaying without probably realising of, um, you know, work ethic, competitiveness, professionalism, all these things. That's what he wanted to rub off on the guys. And that's just what I did. Stayed true to myself, didn't try to be someone I wasn't. Um, and I certainly wasn't the best at it back then, but I, I got better. But that's what he sort of saw in me. And I saw this and without him putting his faith in me, I, I probably would have had nowhere near the career that, that I've had, you know. So so I will be forever thankful for, for Warren Gatland and putting the faith in me because he completely changed my career path for the better. And um, yeah, so that, that conversation with him was obviously the most com- difficult conversation I probably had in, in my whole career. It feels like you're a bit of a, re- a reluctant leader. feels like he spotted really early on the qualities that were in you to be that person, but you were a little reluctant to do it. But you now appreciate that actually you did have them all along. Yeah, I guess I'm, I maybe consider myself a leader because I was very competitive. Um, I was extremely professional. You know, I, I, I always did what I had to do, you know, and I thought that was my behaviours were the right sort of, we call them elite behaviours, you know, we... I sort of displayed those without even trying. The things about captaincy that I was nervous about was like, you know, media attention. Um, suddenly you become much more high profile. You know, you've got to be put in front of the media and uh, sponsorships and you're put in front of rooms of corporates and after dinner speeches and all these things. I'm like, I just want to play rugby. I, I don't want to do all this other stuff, you know. So people don't realise I got a match day. Players go back into the dressing room. They have their quick debrief for the coaches. They go into the room next door, see all their families. Meanwhile, the captain's got to do a live pitch side interview in front of, if it's a Six Nations game, millions of people. You go up the tunnel, you've got to do then like live flash interviews and recorded interviews. Got to get your clothes on quickly. Then you've got to go and do a, a live press conference in front of all the written papers and journalists. Then you've got to go upstairs and do a formal speech in front of all the sponsors and chairmans and you know the hundreds of people that are up there. Like you know, It's, it's not a nice gig all the time you just want to play rugby you know so that was the bits that I found really difficult but but I got used to but he managed to strip back as many of those as he possibly could because you still need to focus on the performance ultimately you lead in how you perform you know and that's got to be the number one priority for for any leader in any walk of life you know you've got to you've got to walk the walk you know and that was the one thing I wanted I didn't want to get all these distractions and not still be able to focus on myself and what I needed to deliver for the team to work properly. So having the right coach who understood that, made sure that I could still do all the diligent prep that I wanted to do, um, allowed me to do both roles and, and grow into it. And as you get older, you, those things become water off a duck's back. You know, now you can speak in front of people and go on TV, it's easy. But when you're 22, that's a you're in the deep end, you know? So it took me time, time to get used to that, but I had great support around me in, in my head coach. Is all that sounding really familiar? <laughs> it makes it sound very daunting, <laughs> but it's very true. It is. You gotta. You've really got to want to do it and take it on and show that uh, you know have that responsibility. Well, you don't just get to be a sportsman, do you? I mean, if you are the captain, you don't just get to be the sportsman. Like you say, there's so many other roles that you have to fulfil along the way, and that can be. Do you find that really emotionally draining as well? If it didn't come nat- necessarily naturally at the beginning, was that exhausting for you having to do all that? That's a good point. I think you're right. And that's maybe why I enjoyed being injured on the odd occasion because you think, oh, geez, I could finally the microscope's off and I can actually just be, I actually quite liked just living under a rock, doing rehab, focusing on me and getting myself better. Mm. That was actually quite nice sometimes and to be taken away from that. I was very lucky that, say, the Six Nations, I never missed a Six Nations campaign. Just pure, purely coincidental, I was always fit for a Six Nations and a World Cup and a Lions tour. And I'm very lucky and grateful for that. I imagine it would have been much more difficult um, 
to miss a Lions Tour or a World Cup or like say, you know, in Ben's example, an Olympic Games, that, that's crushing, you know. But I was fortunate I didn't miss any of those big milestones. So I was very lucky. Um, I imagine I would have been a much more difficult person to be around had I, you know, had a Lions Tour threatened and couldn't go. But that's why I think being a captain, having the release of an injury and actually escaping, and that's why any sports person needs to have an escape and a release valve and do something to switch off from the sport. It's so important to have longevity in it because otherwise that constant mental grind as well will eventually get you down and you need to find space to to step back from that. Sam, it's interesting, so being very humble talking about the luck side of things, but do you think also there was an element that you were effectively peaking for those World Cups and, and big competitions mm-hmm. and that was part of, you knew that you just had to back off a little bit in the, in the build-up to those competitions to make sure you actually got to the... <laughs> got to the match yeah. itself yeah no you're right and it's something I never actually admitted until I finally retired and because people might watch me play for the club and think he's good but he, he may, he's not Lions good um, and I remember having a discussion about this with a sports psychologist and I said to him I was like man I, I can't peak 30 times a year I just found it was my, my body couldn't cope with it um, I found it really difficult mentally because when, when you have these big games, whether it's a Lions game or a Wales game or a big club game, you you know, I, I put myself into so much, and i got to put myself in such an uncomfortable position to deliver. I, I would have been a horrible person, not horrible, but a very, not a nice person to be, to be around for, for, you know, a day or two before a game. So I was so desperate to be good. And, to, and I knew, I used to get nervous of what I had to put my body through more than anything. Um, so I, I remember he spoke to me he said you never dip below a certain standard you never dip below a 7 or 8 out of 10 when you play for your club you're always a 7 or 8 out of 10 you, you never go below that level you always do enough subconsciously but then when you get then to the national level then you turn it to a different gear and I, it sounds I don't want to sound arrogant but I felt I could do that I felt I could get to the a big club game or a big national game or a Lions tour and I could just go to a different level where Maybe some athletes couldn't, and I, I, I really, I actually feel quite uncomfortable saying that because it sounds a little bit arrogant. But that's often the difference. I find there's a lot of people who are great at club level, they get to international, and they don't thrive, and people are like, why is that? And some people, and I used to say this when I used to get the boys together before big games in the huddle. Big games bring out the biggest players, and it's so true. And there were certain players I just knew would be there every big game. They just thrived. The bigger the pressure, the more the pressure, the better they were, and. I, I quite enjoyed that as well. I loved that pressure cooker environment of, say, playing in front of 10 million on BBC for a Wales-England game or a Lions tour, you know, in front of millions of people. Like, I loved that. I was like, right, this is where I go to work. And this is where I put in that 15 years of diligence into practice. And I loved that. But I couldn't peak for that more than 10 times a year. I finished at 29 as it was. And it's a reason I didn't go and play in France because they would have wanted me to play for three, four times the money, but they would have wanted me to put in the performances I put in for Wales 30 times a year for club level. If I did that, I would have finished when I was 26. You know, like I, I couldn't do that. So for longevity in my career, and I still only went on until I was 28, 29, I had to kind of, you're right, Ben, like I kind of had to pick and choose a little bit my battles and make sure that I peaked at the right time. Um, and I felt, I always would feel you- guilty saying that because your club employed you, but that was the, the, the harsh kind of, yeah. I don't like saying it, the reality. And would you do that with Chris? Would you guys sit down and say, okay, this is the season, this is what's coming up, this is how we're going to get you through that? Or was it, it wasn't quite as structured as that? Yeah, no, it, it wasn't like, Chris would obviously prepare me physically, but the coach, like I find this at club level, coaches are under so much pressure to deliver all the time. So you can't, I'd never pull, my, I only pull myself out of two games my whole career out of 200. And that's from illness, you know, if somebody wanted me to play, I'd always do it. Um, you can't like sort of bite the hand that feeds you, you know, you've got to do what you're told to do. But I just thought sometimes, right, I just got to get through this game. I'll do enough. I'll contribute. I'll make sure that I do my role. But if I hit that certain level, I could it could be detrimental to me in the long term, you know. And I had to really be careful where I could pick and choose that. You know, you can obviously tell from the injuries I've had. I wasn't the most resilient player from a physical perspective. Some guys are much more durable than me. I wasn't a durable player. Um, I did as much prehab as I could, but it just... I, I'm a skinny kid playing rugby. You know, I'm like, like my twin brother's like three stone lighter than me. Like a lot of this weight I, I carried as a player was, you know, artificially put on, but it's a necessary evil. I couldn't have been 80 kilos and played rugby because I would have just been dominated. I wouldn't have made it out of age group rugby. So I had to put on the sort of two and a half, three stone to be able to survive at that level. So it was a very, it's a vicious circle and a, and a really tough balance snack that you have to try and try and perform. To just, what just is, to add Chris, to that, what ben? sort of, sorry, go on. 
No, I was just going to add to that. I think the relationship that Sam and I had as kind of coach athlete, I think I, I understood um, not just Sam's kind of strengths, but also others within the group. But I also knew after that, almost those early years where Sam had done so much work to develop those physical qualities, that actually when it came to managing sort of Sam's strength and conditioning, which was a strength of his from a mindset and obviously a performance standpoint, he could get away with when he was at his peak so much less volume than a lot of other players. Once he'd built that kind of physicality, it's actually, when you look at the sort of physiology of it all, you know, maintaining strength is really relatively quite easy. Developing strength is a long, long road. But once you've got a specific level of power that you can literally give that fire, just that little bit of kind of an ignite, you know, Sam didn't need the volume that he maybe needed when he was a kid. So in terms of Ben managing the demands of not just the rugby, but the physical kind of prowess that goes alongside that, I could definitely kind of push and pull depending on the time of year. And, and actually Sam doing less turned him into an even better player because he, he maintained that sort of speed and power quality that was such a strength within his game. So actually the volume that we delivered on the sort of off the field was so much less, which allowed him to obviously play, you know, play powerful on the field. So performance tips for better performance every day. Your very business is about taking this training model that you've learned so much about in Rugby Union and applying it to business and giving people training programs that they can use in their everyday lives um, that aren't necessarily professional athletes. They might be, but might not be also. So give us a tip. Let's, Chris, let's start with you. Performance tip to live a better life um, every day. Prioritize sleep. Sorry, we've all got we've all got kids. We've all got kids, and it's not what impossible. You your kids. As Sam was alluding, you've, you've got to find a way. Um, hydration. I know that two two. I know we'll put we'll put sleep. Excuse the pun to bed. Um, hydration. <laughs> the amount of people who wander around dehydrated and underperforming as a result is probably staggering. There is science to validate that. Um, three litres of water a day for me, minimum. You'll feel so much better. I'll never be out of the bath. That's, yeah, that's a good tip. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, yeah, my word, Chris, I guess, went down the physical route. I'll go from like a, a, a mindset route. Um, and, and me and Chris laugh about this. I think you get this young generation now who go on social media and they'll see an absolute minority of people who might have made a few quid on a Bitcoin investment or something ridiculous and they believe in this thing called the overnight success, which doesn't exist. I think if anybody, if you say like, what is elite? And how do you get elite? Elite is doing things which other people aren't willing to do for an unusually long amount of time, knowing you might not get any reward for it for the short term, medium term. And it's willing to do those things, as Chris has said, whether it's, say if it's a training program, and it's not trying to sell anything, you could be a chiropractor, anything. You're not going to achieve anything much in six weeks. And that's the point where people, they, they work so hard for six weeks, whether it's business, whether it's with a PT or whether it's with sporting sense. And then at six weeks, they look in the mirror and they go, I'm not what I want to be. And that's where a lot of people, I think, the non-elite people give up. And I think the other one percenters go, I'll keep going. And they do another six weeks. And then they do another six weeks. And then they're starting to get somewhere and they do another six weeks. Then you look back after six months, 12 months, you think, right, I'm getting somewhere. And then you see that progression, you get the bug and you keep going. And once you run with that for three years, then you'll get there. So that's kind of what I would say is sort of being elite. It's those people who are willing to commit to the cause, whether it's sport, whether it's outside in the real world, in business. That's what elite to me looks like. And that's what I try and apply to my interests now um, and how I try to apply myself as a player. So Gold I dust. hear you both and I think they're brilliant answers, but you're killing my dreams. One, I have to prioritise <laughs> sleep and two, and two, there's no such thing as an overnight success story where fitness or something is required, which is just killing to me. Well, I'd, I'd, love, to, I'd love to ask Ben, I'd love to ask Ben, for example, like how, how long did it take you, Ben, until you felt you were starting to scratch the ceiling of your potential, it certainly wouldn't have been a few weeks. So, how long would it have taken you, for example? Oh, years and years and years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, He's about eighty-five, so it would have I'm taken a good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no. no, that's that's absolute gold dust, guys. That's that's fantastic tips. Yeah, really fascinating, brilliant. Thank you both of you for coming on. 
pleasure. Thanks no problem at all. Us. Thank you. Well, look, I mean, that was brilliant. I mean, there were so many great lessons there. I loved it. I think the one for me, big one for me, was Sam, you know, talking about eventually working out through all his injuries and so on, that actually sometimes less is more. And through an injury or, or just recovering from a really hard workout training session, you know, sometimes you can come back stronger from that. So great, great lessons there. How, how about you? Well, I, I want to correct myself because I called him a reluctant leader. I don't think I meant that. What I meant to say was a reluctant hero because I kind of get the impression that that's the guy he is. He's very, very humble, but he knows and he knew how brilliant a player he was and perhaps didn't know until later what a great captain he made, which is obviously the subject of his podcast, so that that rings true. Um, and the other thing, again, was the, the big takeaways from that. I mean, prioritise sleep, which we all quickly corrected as an impossible can't task. That. We can't do that. None of us are in a position to do that with young children. If you are, good luck to you, but we are sadly not at that stage yet. Um, and I think the other big takeaway was hydration, because that is something yeah. I am so guilty yeah, of. Yeah, likewise. I think we all are. Yeah, yeah I could really definitely do much more of that. Um, thank you for listening and or watching today. Uh, we have been Performance People, Georgie and Ben Ainsley. And remember, from what we've learned today, hydrate. That seems to be the key. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.